We talk about committing our life to Christ. Before you can commit your life to Christ, you have to surrender it first. And you're either all in or you're not in. You're either totally in or you're not in. Uh, you know, it's, it's a total commitment. He has got to become the number one priority and the number one relationship in your life. Welcome to the Jesus Calling Podcast. Today's guests are two men who have learned about the power of choices, because choices can either leave us empty or allow us to be used by God for His good. Former WWE wrestlers Ted DiBiase and Mark Miro. Wrestling fans may know Ted DiBiase as the Million Dollar Man, but today we get a look at the man behind the persona. Ted looks back on how his father, who was also a wrestler, influenced him to pursue the sport he loved. As Ted rose through the ranks and became a world-famous wrestler, he reveals how he got caught up in a destructive lifestyle that led him to the brink of losing everything that really mattered to him. Hi everybody, I'm Ted DiBiase, uh, better known to some of you if you're a wrestling fan as the Million Dollar Man of the World Wrestling Entertainment. Uh, I had a wrestling career that spanned some 19 years actively and another six years behind the scenes as a manager commentator, so a 25-year career. Uh, for the last 18, almost 19 years, I've been in full-time evangelism. Uh, I'm a father, a husband, and uh, most of all a follower of Jesus Christ. My biological father's name was Ted Wills. He was a professional singer. and. Uh, he and my, I can't remember what year they married, but um, I was two years old when they divorced. And when they divorced, um, I went back to Southern Arizona where my grandparents had moved from Nebraska. This is my mother's parents. My grandmother ran a truck stop. Wilcox, Arizona, I'm, I'm telling you, has three traffic lights. I don't think it has maybe one or two more now all these years later, but it's a little town. And so I'm there from the age of two to five, living with my grandmother. And uh, I remember kindergarten a little bit, uh, but then that's when my mother married Mike in October of 1959. And so this bigger than life man comes into my life and becomes dad. And uh, he was a professional wrestler. Mike DiBiase had a huge impact on my life. He was a good dad. Uh, you know, and as well as uh, the wrestler, he was every bit uh, an athlete as an amateur as he was professional. And the other thing that happened as a result of being Mike DiBiase's son was that I went to church. Now, like most Italians, my dad was Roman Catholic. So I, in my earlier years, was, was raised in Catholicism. I was the award-winning altar boy. I'm the guy who showed up at the six o'clock mass when there was four feet of snow on the ground and some of the things that he instilled in me. And I, when I do school assemblies, I tell kids this all the time. I said, my dad always said this. He said, don't follow the crowd. Don't do what everybody else is doing because 90% of the time it's no good. He said, be a leader, not a follower. Be the head, not the tail. And he said, uh, uh, if you're willing to sacrifice, if you're willing to pay the price, he said, you can be anything you want to be in life. And I remember him telling me, he said, I don't care if you want to be a drummer in a rock and roll band. He said, if that's your passion. If that's what's in your heart, do it. 
because if it's in your heart, then you're going to give it your all. But he says, if you're willing to make the sacrifices necessary to be successful, you can't. And, you know, it was evident in his own life. And then uh, the summer between my, uh, the ninth grade and, uh, and my uh, sophomore year, or yeah, sophomore year in high school, we went back to Texas. And that's the summer my dad died, July 2nd, 1969. They wrestled in Lubbock, Texas, which is about 100 miles uh, south of Amarillo. And uh, we, uh, I had gone to see a friend of mine play baseball, a guy who I had gone to school with and had developed a friendship with back when I was in the sixth grade. And uh, so they drop us off. And uh, I remember when I got there that one of our other friends were there. These two ladies that were very close with my mom, whose husbands were wrestlers. And they said, Ted, you know, is your mom, you know, where is she? I said, well, she's taking a nap. You know, we've been unpacking all day. She need, need to wake her up. And I said, what's going on? She said, well, we just need to wake her up. So I woke her up, and then one of the ladies took me down the hall outside, put me against the wall, and said, look, we came over here to get your mom. We were going to take her to Lubbock. Your dad had a heart attack tonight in the ring, and they were taking him to the hospital. But we just received another call. And... That he, that he passed away. I mean, it's surreal. Uh, I, I remember that so well. Uh, it's engraved in my memory. I remember I went and I stood at a plate glass window that overlooked the, like the swimming pool in the apartment complex and just cried. Um, unbelievable feeling of loss. And my mother was just hysterical. If that weren't enough, I watched in horror as my mother sank into despair and, and alcoholism. I remember, uh, on the hard nights, a lot of weekends, I'd drive my grandmother's old Rambler out to the cemetery where my dad's buried and parked the car, shine the light on his grave. And I'd pace back and forth in front of that grave and cry and cry out to God. Ask God to give me help to, you know, be the man that I wanted to be and to achieve the goals I had set. My dad is gone, I won't see him till eternity, but I want him to be proud. You know, help my help me to, you know, show my mom why she shouldn't quit and give up on life. I prayed prayers like that. Um, so I didn't follow the crowd. I didn't party and get drunk on weekends and do all that stuff. Towards the end of my senior year of high school, you know, um, that, that's when the that's when the ego started to, to rise. I was the first kid to ever graduate from this little school with a full scholarship to play Division I college football. I initially signed with Arizona, then I went to a school called West Texas State in the Texas Panhandle. Why? Back to Texas. A very influential wrestling family, the Funk family, were from Amarillo. And so I've known those guys all my life. Um, I'm watching TV one day. I'd already, I had already signed a letter of intent to play football at Arizona. And I hadn't seen any wrestling for three years. Ever, since my dad's death, I hadn't seen any wrestling. And I look, I'm watching TV one afternoon and wrestling comes on out of Tucson. It's the tape out of Texas and they're coming to Tucson. So I make the drive, I see these guys, I tell them what's gone on and what's happened. And uh, one of them said, hey look, even if you've already decided what you wanna do, he says, I can get you a recruiting trip back to West Texas State. And if nothing else, just come back and see everybody. 
So I took that trip and in reality that's all it took. When I got to college, uh, the pride of life took over and I fell right in line and to make a long story short, uh, by the time I uh, uh, was 26, I had, <laughs> I had failed to complete college by a year. Um, I'd been married and divorced. I had a son for my first marriage, uh, but by then I'd become a professional wrestler. I had been so faithful to my convictions until God gave me what I wanted. And it's as if I said, gee, thanks, Lord. I appreciate all your help showing up for me when I was crying in that desert cemetery and seeing me through all of this. But I got it now. And when I need you again, I'll let you know. Words getting out, you know, that I've got a lot of talent. And uh, uh, I wrestled in Mid-South uh, quite a bit. Better part of the first 12 years of my career before the WWF. But in 81, in Atlanta, Georgia, Georgia Championship Wrestling, I met Melanie. The last thing I was looking for was a wife or to fall in love because I had been through a, a marriage that should have never happened, really. Uh, I had a son that I loved dearly but couldn't see except on weekends and special occasions. And then, the, you know, because of the business I was in, I hardly saw him at all. But Melanie, uh, Christian girl, and, uh, and we, just, we just hit it off. Uh, I mean, that was like uh, from day one. And... Uh, we didn't do everything right either. Three months after we're married, she's pregnant. And uh, uh, so our first son came in, in uh, November 8th, 1982. Three years later is when uh, I got that call from Vince. Um, WrestleMania three had just taken place and they had set an indoor world attendance record, 93,000 people wrestling. I, mean, I remember looking at the front page and going, if I'm going to be relative in wrestling, that's where I'm going to be. And I, I saw what was happening. When he contacted me, he said, I've got an idea, Ted. He said, it's never been done. He said, Ted, he said, one thing everybody hates is a, a guy who, by virtue of his wealth, thinks he's better than everybody. He looks down his nose at people. He's a bully. He bullies people with, with, with his wealth. You know, he said... Uh, and in reality, you know, all bullies are cowards too. You know, you know, you never get tired of seeing a bully get his butt kicked. And I started laughing. I said, "You're right." And he said, "Well, that's the essence of this this character." He said, uh, "In an effort to market this character, we're going to try to make the public believe you're really rich." I said, "How are you going to do that?" He said, "Well, we're going to fly you everywhere as first class. Sometimes that's going to mean you'll have private jet service." You're going to have limousine service every day, airport to hotel, hotel to Coliseum, back to hotel, back to airport. He says, and uh, you're going to make, be making a kind of money where, you know, I, you know, I expect you to stay at only the finest hotels. We're even going to give you, he called it flash cash. This guy walks in the room and counts out $2,000 in brand new $100 bills. And he says, Here's what I want you to do. He said, now, if you abuse this, you lose it. But if you do it right, this, this word will travel like fire. He says, pick your spots. Go into a restaurant. Get up and announce yourself. And tell everybody it's your lucky day because a million-dollar man is picking up the tab. I knew when Vince offered me this opportunity that that's what I needed to do. I said, I'm your guy.
I'll sign the contract. The money was all written off as marketing. That's what it was doing. And you talk about social media, forget it. That word, that word traveled like wildfire. This guy is really loaded. So you can imagine. You know, oh my gosh. And I mean, I went from, you know, driving my own car to riding around limousines and Lear jets. And, and wrestling is, is, is rising to a, a level of fame that nobody foresaw. And I mean, we were literally like rock stars and we were living like rock stars. So WrestleMania eight took place in Indianapolis, Indiana, uh, March of 1992. And I was at the height of my fame. I mean, Learjet's limousines, action figures, video games, all that stuff was starting to happen. And uh, I went out after the WrestleMania that night on the town, uh, dressed in a tailor-made suit, beautiful girl on my arm, hit all the hot spots in Indianapolis because I'm cool. I'm the million dollar man, boy. So uh, I don't even go to bed. I mean, I, I had the limousine take me to the airport straight from a bar. Flew to Detroit, checked into the Marriott Hotel, and then went to a payphone to call home. What a nice guy, huh? Big surprise on the phone, though, that day. Now, on the other end, my wife now has discovered some of what's going on in my life. So I want to talk about it on the phone. I'll be on the next plane home. She said, no, you won't. You don't live here anymore click. First words out of my mouth, oh God, help me. Talk about hypocrisy. Oh God, help me. Next call I made is to uh, the guy who's my closest friend and has been a mentor to me ever since. His name's Hal Santos. Hal's relationship with me was not based on performance. In other words, I didn't have to jump through a bunch of hoops. He didn't, he didn't batter me every time that he got on the phone with me about, are you going to church? Are you doing this? Are you doing that? I, what I realized is the guy just loved on me. He was just my friend. He said, Ted, Jesus said the truth that set you free. Never said it'd be easy. Never said it'd be painless. Said it'd set you free. He said, if you'll trust him today, like you did when you were a kid, when you were 15, he knew my story. When you go to that desert cemetery, he said, He'll hear you, he'll forgive you, he'll restore you. He said, he never left you, you left him. And all these years, he's been trying to draw you back. And even as I say that to you now, and I tell this story so many times, I almost tear up and cry because the realization that there's a God that big who could love me that much. And as I looked at my life and realized how many times I had abused that, just trampled the blessing and you still love me, God. You know, God gives you that long, hard look in the mirror. I mean, you know, here, I, you know, I've got, I've got, I'm at the height of my, my, my career. I've got everything that I ever dreamed I wanted. Plus, I've got this unbelievable wife and, and these three beautiful children, but I have no character, I have no integrity. I don't have the stuff that counts, and uh, wow. That was the wake-up call. So going in to face my wife was probably the hardest thing I ever have done. It was the worst and best day of my life. I told the whole miserable truth, 
and uh, watched Melanie walk out of the room in tears, look back at me through tears and go, who are you? Where's the guy I thought I married? I'm about to get what I deserve, is what I thought. And uh, um, it was a couple of days later, Hal, Pastor Hal had asked us to join him and his youth group and his wife and his daughter on this, they, they were going to St. Louis. And this was like, this was, this was the weekend leading into Easter Sunday. So we got there and I walked into this big ballroom about 1,500 teenagers from all over the state of Illinois. They call it the Ascension Convention. The speaker that day is a, a wonderful man of God, and he can bring it too. Is that Reggie Dabbs? He's really good. And uh, so he gave his presentation, and then he came to the invitation. So if you're tired of living a lie, you know what you need. You know, you know it's Jesus. Then I challenge you to get out of your chair and get up here now. Well, now this is back when I had highlighted blonde hair, dark tan. I stuck out like a neon sign, and I heard it ripple through the room when I walked in there. WrestleMania had just taken place the week the weekend before. That's the Million Dollar Man. That's Ted DiBiase. What in the world is he doing here? <laughs> I looked back at that and realized that God had me there for this purpose. He wanted to see. He wanted to see if I'd bury my pride, my ego, which had controlled my life pretty much for 20 years. But I get in front of all those kids who recognize me as a television star and supposedly a, you know, tough guy and go forward. I beat them all to the front. I was the first man up there. I didn't just go forward, brother. I went forward and I, I dropped to my knees. I put my nose in the carpet and I cried like a baby. And uh, I've never been the same since. Um, I remember saying, God, I don't know where we're going. All I know is this. I don't ever want to feel like this again. I don't ever want to feel this lost, this low. Um, I know you have a plan for me. And I know you'll help me figure it out. That's where I want to go. You take the helm of the ship. And I remember saying, I know I'm probably going to lose my family, and that's what I deserve. And even if I do, I'm giving you my word, I'll take care of them. But uh, the biggest shock of the day for me was my wife. She saw all this, she had seen me cry the whole time. I mean, from the first time I laid eyes on her, you know, because I did love her so much, I do love her so much, and just was, uh, you know, how, how, Ted, how could you do that? Um, and she said this, she said, I'm not going to make you a promise I can't keep. I'm not sure I'm strong enough to do this. She said, but I serve a God of restoration, not divorce. I serve a God who says, forgive as you've been forgiven. She goes, I, I believe that you're sorry, Ted. Of course, I want to believe that you're sorry. And even though I believe that, I'm not sure I have the strength to stay. But because I want to be obedient, that's the word she used, to this still small voice in my heart, I'm going to try to give you another chance. We're coming up on 37 years. Uh, I made this list of the hotels 
in all the cities where I would be and the phone numbers so she could check up on me. She ripped it up, threw it away, and she goes, I'm not going to put you on a leash like a dog. She said, I watched you make a commitment to Jesus Christ. She goes, that's your watchdog. She said, if you wanted to do this again, you'd find a way. But know this, if you do, he will bring you down so fast your head will spin. And I mean, when I tell you the hair on the back of my head stood straight up, I was like, oh my gosh. Now there's a, there's a, there's a woman of faith. And uh, so her faith was in him, not me. Uh, and, you know, but as Melanie began to see my life bear fruit, she saw me get up, she'd get up and I'd be sitting at the table with a cup of coffee and one devotional after another. And she began to see me lead my family to church and lead my family in prayer. Jesus Calling is one that I, you know, I, it's one of the, a couple of devotions that I do every morning. I use it in the morning. Sometimes I go back to it at night too. Let me bless you with my grace and peace. Open your heart and mind to receive all that I have for you. Do not be ashamed of your emptiness. Instead, view it as the optimal condition for being filled with my peace. It is easy to touch up your outward appearance, to look as if you have it all together. Your attempts to look good can fool most people, but I see straight through you into the depths of your being. There is no place for pre pretense in your relationship with me. Rejoice in the relief of being fully understood. Talk with me about your struggles and feelings of inadequacy. Little by little, I will transform your weaknesses into strengths. When I went back to the WWF, I mean, man, I, you know, I had changed, but the environment I was in had changed at all. So this was, this was like, uh, so by the summer of 1993, I decided I'm getting out of here because if I if I don't if I continue this, you know, uh, it's gonna it's gonna suck me back in. The most frightening thing I ever did in my life to step out like that, walking away from the one thing I knew all my life, wrestling, you know, and to be an evangelist and. Uh, Talk about a pay cut, <laughs> but it ain't about the money. It's you know, it's about the fruit. Pastor Hal Santos, who's my mentor and one of my best friends, uh, he said he said this. He's first. He said, Ted. He said, now there's going to be a lot of pastors find out that you're a Christian now, and he says, with all the best intentions, they're going to want to ask you to come to their churches and and share your story, your testimony. He says, I just want to caution you right now. And this is right at the beginning. He said. You're a baby Christian. In other words, give myself time to grow. He said, exactly. And I said, so I gave him my word that I wouldn't go until, until he said, you know, go. Or thought I was at a place where he think, thought I could. And the first time I ever did, I went to a little church in Paducah, Kentucky with him from St. Louis. We went together and uh, it's the first time I ever shared. It was a youth group. So these kids start coming up, you know, and Hal looks at me and, you know, I see him go. And I look at him like, well, he says, go pray with somebody. You know, <laughs> I, had, I had never done it. I, you know, not in that kind of a setting, at least. And I, I said, well, okay. So I start to walk forward and, and, and this, I'll never forget this kid. He had bright red hair, freckled face, you know, hair to about shoulder length. 
And so he comes up before I can even open my mouth. He throws his arms around my neck, buries his head in my shoulder, and he's, he's crying. And he says, all my life, he says, my parents, my grandparents even, have tried to tell me why I needed Jesus. I just didn't get it. He said, but through your story tonight, I got it. Man, even now, that was the first time. That was, I mean, the light went off. I went, oh my God. God just used me to change this kid's life. Brother, I have wrestled in front of 80,000 people at Wembley Stadium, and that is a pretty big thrill. Doesn't even come close to that moment in my life. To learn more about Ted DiBiase, visit his website at milliondollarman.com. And to learn about where he is speaking next and about the Heart of David ministry, visit heartofdavidministry.com. Stay tuned for our interview with motivational speaker and former WWE wrestler, Mark Miro, after a brief message about a free offer from Jesus Calling. Want a daily reminder that we can have hope, peace, and joy each day in Jesus? Now it's as easy as opening an email. The Jesus Calling Daily Email brings you a thought from the Jesus Calling family of devotionals every day. Brighten up your inbox with this little reminder and take a minute to connect with God during your day. To sign up to get your free daily thought from Jesus Calling, please visit JesusCalling.com slash daily dash email. That's JesusCalling.com slash daily dash email. During times of transition and unknown next steps, it's more important than ever to cling to the promises of God and to tune your ear to what Jesus has to say. Jesus Calling for Graduates is an encouraging compilation of 150 devotions from Sarah Young's brand. Grads will find topics such as discerning God's will, self-worth, trust, support, and much more. Jesus Calling for Graduates is perfect for both high school and college graduates as they embark on the next chapter. Look for a special custom edition of Jesus Calling for Graduates, available exclusively at faithgateway.com. Our next guest is former WWE wrestler and now motivational speaker, Mark Miro. A talented athlete from an early age, Mark always had dreams of being in professional sports. As he acquired all the things he had dreamed of since he was a little boy, fame, wealth, status. He quickly realized his choices had consequences. After he realized he'd been dreaming of the wrong things, Mark took a long, hard look at what he was living for. My name is Mark Merrill, and uh, I was born in Buffalo, New York. I grew up a big sports fan and loved sports, and uh, was my passion growing up, football, hockey, boxing, um, lacrosse, and eventually became a professional wrestler. I first got introduced to hockey, and uh, but so I decided to, to to play ice hockey. But the problem was I, I never skated before. I didn't know how to skate, so it caused a little dilemma there. So what happened was I decided to play goalie, and uh, the one thing about goalie is you learn whether you have good reflexes or not very quickly. And I had really good reflexes, but I couldn't skate. And when I remember trying out for the team, um, kids would come up from behind me and hit me in the back of the skates and I'd go flying because I couldn't keep my balance or anything and kids would laugh and stuff. And unfortunately I had to play goalie because that's the only position you don't gotta really skate around to be 
halfway decent at, as long as you can make saves. Well, not only did I make saves, but out of 20 games, I had 13 shutouts. And now at the um, banquet at the end of the year, they announced the MVP for the league, not the team, the league. And they announced this year's 1972 MVP is Mark Merrill. And I walked by all the kids that laughed at me, that knocked me down, that said, you'll never be anything because you can't skate. And uh, I was MVP. I think it, it really motivated me. Um, you know, you always want to be a part of things. You always want to be liked. You, you want to be, you know, a, a good teammate or a good person. And I think because I wasn't good at first in sports, it made me work that much harder. And so it was a really defining moment in my life because that summer I learned how to skate. Next year, I became leading scorer in the league. My first year learning how to skate. So it was the beginning of really going after dreams and goals. My mom and dad had my older sister, Jody. I'm the middle child. Uh, and I have a younger brother named Joel. I'll never forget, I came from school. I was, I was uh, eight years old. And I saw my dad's car in the driveway, which was really unusual because my dad didn't come home till like dinner time. And I was thinking, oh my gosh, dad's home, you know? So I was really excited and I could run in the house. And my mother was sitting in the, in the living room, but she had her head buried in her hands and she was crying. So I walked up and I said, Mom, what's wrong? And she, she lifted her head and tears were streaming down her, 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 her cheeks. And she said, Mark, Daddy's leaving. And I was puzzled. I was like, where's he going? <laughs> and I ran into my mother and father's bedroom because I heard my dad in there. And he had his back to the door, but he was putting clothes in the suitcase. And I stood in the door and I said, Daddy, where are you going? And he was startled. He turned around and he goes, Mark, I want you to know I love you so much. I said, well, where are you going? And he said those words I, I never forgot. He said, um, Mark, your mom and dad are no longer going to be together. And I remember just like not understanding, but understanding that he was going and not coming back. So I ran over to his suitcase and I grabbed the handles and I fell to my knees and I started begging my father not to leave. I said, Daddy, please don't go. You're my best friend. And, and he just said something I never forgot. He, he pulled the suitcase out of my hands and he says, Mark, don't cry. Everything's gonna be okay. And he walked out the door and I was screaming, Daddy, please don't go. You're my best friend. And he was gone. Now, now fast forward to my dad was in the hospital with lung cancer. And I remember that we got a phone call like six in the morning. They said, you, you need to get here as soon as possible. Your dad needs to see you. I ran into the hospital, took the elevator up to his floor and ran down the hall. And when I opened the door, I could see my dad wasn't doing good. And uh, I remember just um, running over and getting in the bed with him. And I scooped my dad in my arms and I was holding him and he, and he just was looking up and I just started crying. And my tears were coming out so fast, they were hitting my father in his face where it looked like my dad was crying. But the weird thing was, is I've never seen my father cry. But for the first time, it looked like my dad was crying. And then I remember what he said to me when I was a little boy. I said, Daddy, please don't cry. You're my best friend. Everything's gonna be okay. Don't go. And he died in my arms. And it was so powerful that I never forgot that. And when I share that story, many kids I meet or many people I meet that lose a loved one, especially a mom or dad, you know, 
the pain that you feel is something that's hard to explain to someone unless they've been through it themselves. But to this day, I always say that the, the memories are worth the pain. When I was a little boy, I have, the, I have this little book that I still carry around today to my presentations. When I was 10 years old, I'd write my dreams and goals into existence, you know? And, uh, you know, many of them were like, oh, so just aiming bigger than life. I mean, I, I was gonna find the cure for cancer. I was gonna find, uh, you know, I had all these dreams and goals that I write down as a little boy, you know? And I often tell kids that failure is not aiming high and missing, failure is aiming too low and hitting. And I just say, dream big, aim high in life, you know? But I write down things like, uh, I wanna be a millionaire, I want a black Cadillac, <laughs> I want a speedboat, um, you know, all these dreams and goals that I, I had as a kid, you know, would eventually come true in my life, you know? I'll never forget this, Ed. Um, I, I was one paycheck away from becoming a millionaire. In other words, when this paycheck hits my account, seven, seven figures, you know what I mean? And, um, I was so excited about it because it was like my whole life I dreamed about this moment, this time I'd be a millionaire. I remember telling my ex-wife and saying, uh, um, this week we become millionaires. Can you believe it? You know, we're so excited. And, and the check comes, I deposit the bank and it was like, yes, we're a millionaire. You just dream of like, that's gonna make you happy. And in all reality, it, it seemed to cause more and more problems. And not only was it, the beginning to the end of my marriage, my relationship, and, and then walking away from Christ and becoming heavily involved in drugs again, and eventually wind to end my life. It was uh, Christmas and I remember not having any place to go, you know, like no, nowhere to celebrate. You know, I already lost my mother, my father, my brother, my sister, and then my wife walking out the door and divorcing me. And, but Christmas day, I decided to drive to Cocoa Beach, Florida, and I sat under the pier. I just watched the waves roll in and roll out, and I started thinking about my life. You know, I was once rich and famous, and I was I had millions of dollars. I had it all. And here I am sitting under a pier by myself on Christmas Day. And I remember just thinking, I don't want to be here anymore. I retrieved my handgun, and I had this big walk-in shower. So I decided to go in there and end my life. As I was standing, as I was standing there, it's like my heart was just pounding. And, and I saw my mom, my dad, my brother, my sister, and I just thought, wow, I just miss them so much. You know, everything I had is gone. And I remember, this is not where I want to go. This is not where I want anyone to go. And I fell to my knees, I pointed the gun away from me, and I just started begging God for forgiveness. I kept saying over and over, change who I am, you know? And because my, my whole life was always trying to change everybody else, you know? You should love me more. Don't you know how to cook dinner? What's wrong with you? Can't you clean the house the way I want to clean, you know? They're always trying to change it. But when you realize it's you that has to change, everything around you starts to change, you know? The tallest I ever stood was that day I got down on my knees and my whole life changed. Now, like I said, it didn't change just overnight. It was, it ne I never did drugs again. This is the most amazing thing was I never touched an, an illegal drug since that, that day and have lived the, just little by little, things start coming back, you know? As Mark began to rededicate his life to God, he started to see huge changes in his world. He opened his heart to his now wife of 10 years, Darlene, and together the two of them began Mark's ministry, Champion of Choices, where Mark speaks to children and schools across the United States and the rest of the globe. 
but Mark found that opening up about his story wasn't always easy. I remember the first time I decided to speak to a school. One of the first times, okay? It was Lake Brantley High School. And I remember telling my wife, I said, Darlene, if I could just touch one person's heart, it's worth it for me. And she said, you go get him, you know? And I got up there and I remember I was like nervous and sweating. I mean, oh gosh, you know, they, they say that the scary, you know, they, they list the 10 scariest things for a human being. N number two is death. You know, number one is <laughs> public speaking. Yes, yes. <laughs> and I experienced it, right? And I started like, uh, I want everybody to stay away from drugs and, you know, be good. Oh gosh, you know, it was just horrible. Kids were all talking and anyways, the thing ends. And my wife comes running up to the stage. She goes, honey, that was great. And I thought, I know it's like I was mad at her for even saying that. Like, you can't, did you not just watch what I just went through? And, but then I thought to her, I thought for a second, I go, oh my gosh, <laughs> the one heart I touched was my wife. So the cool thing was we went home and we started discussing what can make, what, what makes a good presentation. She goes, why don't you just tell your story? I thought, so we went and got pictures of my family and video. And I said, tell my story. I do the next school and kids are in tears and people are writing to us and we're getting these letters. You changed my life. And we got a letter, you saved my life. And not only from that, from the, from the teachers and faculty were writing me, you know? And then it just snowballed into this amazing, amazing ministry. And now we get, gosh, about a hundred messages a day. And gosh, it's such a blessing. There's no greater joy than helping another person. You have to relive those moments, which are not fun to go back to, but knowing I'm going to, I'm going to help someone today. I'm going to let someone know that they're not alone and, and how much they matter. And that's what drives me. It drives me to know that, that God could use my story, my brokenness to help somebody else. Man, we're all broken in some way. You know, we all have stuff. And when you're not afraid to admit you have stuff and you're not perfect and you make mistakes, someone else will go, man, he's just like me, you know? Maybe my life could turn around too, and it does. But at the end of the day, it, it really is just playing that scene and God watering it. God, God helping, some, helping these people or helping someone that heard my story change their life. God has a plan and a purpose for each of our lives, not just this, every one of us. He's got a plan for us, you know? We all go through hard times, you know? We, we all go through storms in life, you know? Some storms, you can just walk through them. Some storms you gotta run through but there are storms that come in our life that we have to hang on with everything we got. Don't let go and don't give up because I promise you after every storm, man, the sun will eventually shine and it's gonna be brighter than you could ever imagine. And I would have never seen that sunlight if I would have gave up. Never would have known all the great things God had for me later on in life, you know? New friends, new family and marriage. And I never met, I never would have met my wife, Darlene. I never would have, had this amazing ministry. I never would have spoken over a thousand schools around the world. You have God, your spouse, you know, family, and, and then your ministry. You, you have to have an order of this thing. And I've been guilty of getting so caught up in maybe trying to help others that sometimes you, you hurt yourself, or your, your wife, or your family, and we all need time together. We have to have that time. Being on the road a lot, you know, we always pray together. And uh, she would send me Jesus Calling and we'd read together our Jesus Calling every morning. So she would send it to me because she, she had the book with her. So she's, she'd take a picture of it and send it to me and we'd read together. And then of course we'd pray together. 
one of the passages I, I really resonated with me and um, is from July 13th. Um, and uh, I can read it. I want you to experience the riches of your salvation, the joy of being loved constantly and perfectly. You make a practice of judging yourself based on how you look or behave or feel. If you like what you see in the mirror, you feel a bit more worthy of my love. When things are going smoothly and your performance seems adequate, you find it easier to believe you are my beloved child. When you feel discouraged, you tend to look inward so you, you can correct whatever is wrong. Instead of trying to fix yourself, fix your gaze on me, the lover of your soul. Rather than using your energy to judge yourself, redirect it to praising me. Remember that I see you clothed in my righteousness, radiant in my perfect love. And I, I'm guilty of judging myself, you know, a little hard on myself sometimes, you know. And when I stop worrying about, you know, if I'm gonna do okay today, or am I gonna be able to help somebody, or did the presentation go smoothly, or whatever it is, stop beating myself up. And just realize, man, he loves me. You know, he, he put me on that stage, he put me in this position in life. Stop beating myself up. And I think many people do that. I think many people are guilty of just being too hard on themselves. And when you're hard on yourself, you know, you have to learn to, to love and value yourself because you can't give away what you don't have. So it's so important to understand that God made you just the way he wanted. And he doesn't make mistakes. So we all like, we all have something about us we don't like, you know? But God made you that way. He made you so perfectly in his eyes. And he sees that, that radiant, perfect love. To learn more about Mark Merrow and his Champion of Choices ministry, please visit thinkpause.org. That's T-H-I-N-K-P-O-Z. If you or someone you know may be considering suicide, contact the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255 or the Crisis Text Line by texting HOME to 741-741. Next time on the Jesus Calling Podcast, we're celebrating National Pets Day and talking about the joy God gives us through animals. We'll hear from LaVon Redfarin, the Executive Director of Proverbs 1210 Animal Rescue, who shared a special program that blesses puppies and people. We are partners with the Davidson County Sheriff's Department's inmate program called Second Chances, and these are nonviolent offenders, women, um, who are incarcerated. They have no history of violence. They're usually drug charges or something to that effect, and they're trying to get their lives back in order. And they foster puppies for us. And those puppies are such a blessing to them. Each time one is adopted, they write a letter that goes with the puppy. And invariably it will say how that animal has blessed them or taught them patience or given them something to wake up for inside those bars. So we're, we're thrilled with that because obviously we're an animal rescue, but anytime we can bless people, um, that's even a better thing. It's a double blessing. Do you love hearing these stories of faith weekly from people like you whose lives have been changed by a closer walk with God? Then be sure to subscribe to the Jesus Calling Stories of Faith podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you like what you're hearing, leave us a review so that we can reach others with these inspirational stories.
And you can also see these interviews on video as part of our original web series, with a new interview premiering every other Sunday on Facebook Live. Find previously broadcast interviews on our YouTube channel on IGTV or on JesusCalling.com video.